Um, we're looking at, at uh, a number of Psalms in the second book of the Psalms. Uh, they start at number 42, and we looked at 42, 43 together last week. And we saw the importance of speaking to ourselves and reminding ourselves to put our trust and our hope in God, who is our Saviour. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at the issue of innocent suffering. And I think it's an important thing for us to think about because many people, sadly, Christians often, but certainly the majority I've met of people who aren't Christian, believe that you relate to God in a transactional way. The most basic form of this is if you're good enough, God will accept you. If you're bad, then God will judge you. And so people weigh up their good deeds with their bad deeds and they try and make sure that they're at least on the positive side of the ledger. Yeah, I think I'm a basically good person. I've never done anything that's terribly bad, so God ought to treat me with respect and uh, invite me into his heaven, and I should be accepted a Christian, because after all, we're all pretty good deep down. This is a Christian country. Surely we'll all be okay when it comes to God. That's a transactional view of God. And uh, this transactional view of God can also creep into Christian ways of thinking. Um, one particular example of this is what comes to be called often the prosperity gospel. And you see examples of it where if positive things are happening, i.e. God is blessing you, um, but if, if negative things are happening, then God is judging you. And that gets brought even into pastoral conversations so that if something is happening that's pretty hard in somebody's experience, then the minister or the Christians around them might be looking to ask them specifically, what have you done that's wrong? You're clearly being judged by God for your, your poor behaviour because God rewards those who are good. Or maybe if you are doing well and uh, you've been following the stock market and you've made a boom and uh, property prices have gone your way and you've got the best job, the best family, the best opportunities all around, then you might think that God's blessing you because of the good things that you've done. And of course, th this can cause great pain for people. I remember when I was uh, admitted to hospital with cancer, one of the first things that was said to me was, have you done anything of which you need to repent? Now, it's a good question to ask, but it's a devastating question to ask. Because as I started to think about it, I couldn't stop thinking of things that I'd done that I needed to repent of and wondered whether I had repented or hadn't repented. And there are many who would say that this is being brought upon you by God's judgment. Well... This is a psalm that talks about innocent suffering. And it is important, of course, that we repent when we've turned our backs upon God, when we've done evil. And sometimes evil does come about as a result of our sinful behaviour. Sometimes in this life we suffer the consequences. We come under God's judgment for things that we've done. But it's very difficult to work out exactly what transaction is happening. I'll give you an example of this uh, from Jesus. Jesus uh, gets asked about some current events. And um, in Luke chapter 13, uh, we'll pick it up, the first few verses. There were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans 
whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, there was the wholesale slaughter of people there at the temple. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus is saying you can't simply identify a transaction. It's not that they lived badly and God brought a direct judgment upon them through Pilate or through the tower falling on them. But when you see judgment happening, it's a good warning to turn back to God. Well, this psalm is a psalm that I think is very timely. And uh, I encourage you to follow it through with me. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at it in three sections. And uh, if you want to know where we're going, the bold points on your outline will tell you this is an Old Testament psalm, but it has a New Testament fulfilment and contemporary application. And we're going to look at it in that way. First of all, I just want to take you fairly briefly through the structure and shape and message of the psalm. So verses 1 to 8 kind of go together, and I'm going to recap them. So we have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them the victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. And it's a great message here. It's, it's pointing back in the history of God's people to the time when he brings them into the promised land. And the word of God makes it very, very clear that God is giving them the land as a gift. In fact, in a little summary statement, right at the end of the book of Joshua, it's made very clear that it was not through their bows or through their swords that they took captivity of the land. It is God's work. God is the giver. God is the one who created the victories over all the ites, the Canaanites and the Malachites and all those other ites that were there. This is God's work, not their work. And as you look at this, it's a wonderful reminder that everything that they have is from God. In fact, one of the refrains that you, you read in this psalm is the word you, and it's directed to God. You, 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 your, your, your. Um, and, and typically in this psalm, this psalm is addressed from the audience, the congregation, to God. But there are some exceptions and I want to highlight those and point them out because I think they can be a key to understanding what to do with this. In verse 4, the next verse, You are my king, someone says, and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. And then it goes back again to the plural, though through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. And then it goes to the singular again. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. And then again, back into the plural, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long and we praise your name forever. Now, 
it's worth noticing that there is this voice, this singular voice. And I had wondered, and I didn't do anything about this, as to whether when this was read, we could have got a small group of people, like a choir, reading all of the plural sections, and then one person steps forward and they read those singular voice verses. Because it seems that there's a leader of the people that's in view. It seems that there's somebody representing the people here. And that the focus of what's going on is understood and is felt by this one person, this individual. But the first of these uh, stanzas, these first eight verses, are a wonderful picture of people not trusting in themselves for victory, but trusting in the God who gives victory. And in many ways, it would have been brilliant if this had finished at Psalm uh, 44 verse 8. Just a nice little psalm. And if it had stopped at verse 8, you'd call it a psalm of praise. But, that's the next word. <laughs> but now, verse 9. And what we'll see, we'll move it from a psalm of praise to a psalm of lament. There are tough times. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You've made us retreat before the enemy and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. See, there's, it's like there's a key change here. From a major key to a minor key. Things have now become, well, terrible. There is suffering. God is no longer with them. In contrast to God's salvation, they are now experiencing defeat. There are dreadful words that are being used here. They are suffering from their enemies, their adversaries. But ultimately, again, notice that God is the one being addressed. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob, yes, but now in verse 9, you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep. You scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance and gained nothing from their sale. It's like, God, why have you discarded us? You didn't even bother to put us on Facebook Marketplace. You just stuck us out on the curb. You got nothing in return. We're, we're unwanted. Why do you do that, God? Here is the cry of suffering, the cry of neglect. But again, it is God's doing. You, God, you, you. And with this defeat that they're experiencing comes shame. Look at verse 13. You have made us a reproach to our neighbours, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. And then again, you go to the singular. I live in disgrace all day long and my face is covered with shame. All the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. Friends, here's a, a picture of the suffering that comes through the taunts of those around. We saw that last week, didn't we, in, in uh, Psalm 42, 43. Where is your God, they taunt, in the face of suffering. There's a shame in being neglected and overlooked and, and, and there's a shame in, it, in 
now being defeated at God's hand. Why is this happening, God? And the focus of this shame, again, seems to be felt by one individual. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. So, in contrast to the earlier victories of, of God through and to their ancestors, now they are experiencing defeat and the shame that comes from this. But here's the stinger. In verses 17 and following, they are suffering though they are innocent. Look at verse 17. All this came upon us though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and you made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. You see, here is a picture of people suffering not through their wrongdoing. This is not a transaction. It's not giving them what they deserved. It's God allowing what they did not deserve to happen to them. They are innocent, they claim. And as you look at verses 19 and following down to verse 21, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? They're willing to say, in effect, as God is my witness, I am innocent. As God who knows my actions, my words and my motives, the thoughts of my heart, I'm innocent. This psalm is a genuine claim that suffering has come about while they have acted innocently before God. That's pretty hard, isn't it? That's the picture that we've got here. And then verse 22... Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Friends, I want to go so far as to say I think that verse 22 is the key verse to this psalm. Look at what's said. Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The suffering that these innocent people, and particularly this innocent one, is suffering, is suffering for God's sake. It's specific suffering for being a follower of God. This is the suffering that comes to those who have chosen to follow the suffering servant. We'll come to that. See, here is a picture of the innocent suffering for the sake of others. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then finally, it leads to prayer. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust and our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. And friends, if verse 22 is a key verse, at least it is for me, then your unfailing love, unfailing love in the original is one word and it's the key word. 
There's a call to God on the basis of God's character, his unfailing love. Um, In Hebrew, it's his hesed. This is God's faithfulness, his unfailing love, a God who keeps his promises, a God who shows mercy. Now, what do we make of all this? Well, we know that God is holy and righteous and just, and yet here is the cry of the heart, a heart that cries out to God, why are these things happening to me? And it's a picture of extreme suffering. It's a picture ultimately of suffering to death. Look at verse 25. We are brought down to the dust, our bodies cling to the ground. He's praying. He's asking that God will answer his prayer. We looked at this in our salt group during the week, and I'm sure many of you did that as well. And people noticed a whole variety of things and drew a variety of connections. One of the connections that was drawn was with the book of Daniel. You get Daniel who is praying to God, and yet he is put into the lion's den to be killed. Of course, God rescues him. You get Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who will not bow down before the statue of the, of the emperor and yet they get thrown into the fiery furnace and God rescues them. But for all that are like those four, there are so many more who don't get rescued. As Jesus reflects back on the Old Testament, he talks about those who rejected and killed the prophets. It was not uncommon to stand up for God and get executed as a result. The innocent have suffered right throughout history. Where does this take us? Well, I want us to think about the singular and then the plural. The singular, the one person, and then the many. And when you focus on the singular voice with this psalm... It's a good question to ask, who can possibly sing this psalm with integrity? Because I tell you, if, if I had to sing or pray this psalm as my own, I'd feel like an imposter, because I would be. Because again and again and again, I would know that I've not been innocent. There is one, though, isn't there? There is one whose name is Jesus, who is the Christ, who committed no sin, and yet he suffered. And he suffered under the hand of God. Not because he deserved to be punished, but because he chose to be punished for the sake of others. This gets picked up a number of times, and I think the allusions of this psalm lie behind a number of sections in the New Testament. Let me just take you first of all to Hebrews Hebrews chapter 5, it it talks about Jesus' prayer. And keep the prayer in this psalm in mind as I read this. In Hebrews 5 and verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Isn't that what's going on in this psalm? The innocent one crying out to God, rise up and rescue me. And Jesus does that. It says that he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. 
And then it says, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now think about that for a minute. It doesn't say, and God didn't listen to him, so he died. It says, God did hear his prayer, and he was saved, not from death, but through death. God heard the prayer of Jesus, the innocent one suffering on behalf of the guilty and he raised him up from the grave. We, uh, we get the same kind of language a little bit later in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, and 1 Peter 2 has got the background of Isaiah 53 in mind. In fact, it gets quoted a couple of times. And this psalm has so many connections. You might like to read it later alongside Psalm 53, the innocent suffering. And uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and, and verse 22, it, quoting Isaiah 53, it says, He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. And if this was transactional, the next verse would say, And God vindicated him by whisking him up straight away to heaven. But it doesn't say that. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. For now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. See, I take it that ultimately the individual voice in this psalm, the one who places no trust in himself but all trust in God his Father, the one who is disgraced, the one who is covered with shame, the one who is reproached and reviled, the one who is led as a lamb to the slaughter is Jesus. Jesus is that one who endures suffering, coming under the judgment of God, though innocent. And why does he do that? Well, friends, he does that for us so that as we trust in him, we might be saved. But also, he does this so that we might follow his example. See, in, in 1 Peter, back in verse 19, just before this, it says, For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Friends, if we want to understand this psalm, we've got to go from the psalm to Jesus. We've got to go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and we've got to see the individual, the innocent one, being Jesus, who is the Messiah, who suffers. But it's as we go from the old to the new and see fulfilment in Jesus that we're then equipped to go to the plural, to go to us and see how we fit in. See, we are to follow Jesus' example. Now, I said the key verse is verse 22. And I say that because it gets picked up very directly in the New Testament. <clears throat> and it's in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. 
If you were with us at the church camp last year, you would have looked closely at, at these verses. But Paul quotes this verse. I'll, I'll put it into context by reading from verse 35 of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now there's your Psalm 44. It's been quoted here and it's explanatory for what's happening. He says, as it is written. And it continues, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, what Paul is doing is saying, brothers and sisters, it's tough living in this world. When you go back a little earlier, it talks about the creation being subjected to frustration. It talks about the whole creation groaning for things to be liberated from their bondage to decay. It talks about the creation longing or groaning for things to be put right. It then talks about Christians groaning for things to be put right. It talks about the Spirit of God groaning with us as we don't know what to pray. But come back to verse 17 of Romans 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The problem with the prosperity gospel, the problem with the transactional approach to God is the belief that when you come to Christ, you take hold immediately all of his blessings. But Romans 8 verse 17 says, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. There's a means to the end. And the means is suffering with our suffering servant Messiah. Friends, this, this is a call for Christians to continue to persevere in the struggle of being part of a world that has gone amok, subjected to frustration on every front, naturally, humanly. This is a, a call to persevere as Christians who will suffer because they give allegiance to Jesus who suffered. We don't feel it terribly much yet in our country. But they're feeling it around the world now. And they have done since the time of Jesus. This is a call for us to continue to keep our hope in God, knowing that nothing can separate us from God's unfailing love his faithful love is fulfilled in Jesus whether life or death 
angels and demons, warfare and strife. No matter what happens in Christ, we are secure in God's unfailing love. So let's take hold of that. Friends, I think that Psalm 44 is a a psalm for the moment. I think it's a psalm for, for you and I. In verses 1 to 8, it's a psalm that calls us to go on trusting in God, knowing that it's God's victory. That just as he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land, so he rescues people from sin and death and judgment and the evil one through the death of Jesus and through his resurrection will bring them to be his people. We can celebrate the victory of God as we take hold of verses 1 to 8. But there's that reality check as well, that we do that in the midst of tough times. We do that in the midst of pain and struggle and suffering and, and death and dying. So we shouldn't be surprised when we taste defeat. We shouldn't be overwhelmed when we experience the shame that's laid upon us for following a first century Jew called Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised, as the scriptures say, when we suffer for Christ or with Christ. But in these times, we should call out to God and pray, your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus. Rise up and rescue. But friends, let's get rid of a transactional view of God. The suffering that we experience is very often not God's punishment. It's just the scars of battle. Let's pray. Father, please apply this.